do a talk. And uh, the last time I came in, I live in Waltham, and the last time I came in, it took uh, close to an hour and a half to get here. And uh, I've, I've also got a foot injury, and the idea of spending a, an hour and a half in a car with my foot screaming louder and louder, not such a good idea. And then as I was walking up the steps, I had this, this very odd experience. Right as I got to the top step and I went for the handle, there's like a wanted poster there. I, I've never seen my picture displayed in public. I have got to tell you, it was the most bizarre thing. <laughs> it was like, who is that? And then I had to think, is this a wanted poster? Did I do something I've forgotten about and it's catching up? So I'm a little, you know, a little less settled than I otherwise might be, but it's great to be here. Um, you know, I, I just find these evenings just delightful. Um, uh, not so much that I get a chance to talk, but more that I get a chance to, to engage with folks after the talk. If I could get away with it, my talk would now be over and we just do Q&A and hang out together and talk about stuff. Um, I can't get away with that. So, uh, and in terms of the talk title, that was a very lively title for me when I was asked to come up with it. Um, it it's not so lively right now. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure what kind of a talk you're going to get. Uh, we'll sort of see as this this unfolds. After the talk, I know that I know the rules. Uh, or you have to stay here for the whole thing. Just between us, okay, don't tell the management. But if you really feel like this is just not doing it for you, you know where the doors are. It's fine. I mean, I've sat through too many things where I felt like I'm a captive audience, you know, and I don't feel like I can leave. And generally, regardless of the level of one's practice, that's unnecessary suffering. Okay? Life's too short. Okay? Um, but don't, don't tell anybody who said that, please. Um, so, um, you know, I, I keep coming back to, to uh, simple stuff. Whatever I've practiced, I've, I've always been drawn to, to the simple, most simple aspects of it, whether it was martial arts or meditation practice or psychotherapy practice. Um, it, simple seems to be really, really solid for the most part. Um, some people need more than that, and that's fine. Um, the more elaborate stuff has just never worked well for me. So as I was driving in, the, the thing that kept coming back to me was the, the Buddha talking about three um, doorways or three entrances to freedom. Uh, anicca, anatta, dukkha. Uh, impermanence, selflessness, and suffering. And the root of that is that we're confused. We think things um, are solid when they're not. We think that life is predictable when it's not. 
We think we can figure it out when we can't. Uh, you know, really fundamentally, we don't make it up and we can't figure it out. And our tool that we bring to bear on our life is thinking. And thinking is a wonderful tool if it's in the service of clarity. However, if what happens to be in the driver's seat is fear or grasping or aversion or hatred or anger or depression or panic, when those are using thinking, the outcome is often that the car ends up in a ditch and we happen to be going right along with it. We also are a little confused that that thought which is conditioned and, and largely symbolic. You know, if, if you take something like uh, the word snow, for example, we all know the, the enormous difference between the word snow and being, you know, picking up a handful of snow or being out in the snow and, you know, sticking our tongue out and having it land on our face and in our mouth. You know, Krishnamurti said, once and often, <laughs> the word is not the thing. And yet we're so conditioned to language and we're so hooked in to believing that that's real because thinking uh, sets off reverberations in the body, strong sensations, biochemical changes in the body. And, and we actually feel as though what we're thinking is happening right now. Right? I mean, we've all had the experience of, uh, well, what if next week I can't? Or what if next week this happens as opposed to this? Or what about tomorrow? Right? And that sets off uh, a reaction in the body. Maybe very little. Maybe it's just like, well, what if, what if I can or can't get my car in for a tune-up? Okay, it'll wait a week. Um, but what if that, that blood work comes back that was a little suspicious and it was ordered because something was not quite right? Well, what about how that comes back next week? Creates a very different experience in the mind-body. And it feels as though that's actually happening now. And, and that's a profound confusion because then we often act on that. We're often driven to action, to release, to get some release from this thought sensation surge in the body. And because that's often hooked into fear and so on, that urge and release drives us in some very unskillful ways. Now, is there anybody that, that is not following this at this point? Am I being, you know, not clear? Are you kind of with this so far? Okay. Um, I mean, it's, it's so common, right? It's, it's not like, oh, wow, this is, this is brand new stuff. It's so common. And yet it's one of the fundamental things that drives us through the day. And one of the fundamental things that results in what we read about in the newspapers uh, and see on the news. Right? So it's, it's not small stuff. It's really significant. 
So we get confused around how life operates. And we imagine that somehow we stand as a separate operator on life. That somehow life is out there, and if I can just know enough or practice enough or get clear enough, I'll be able to, you know, influence, control that. Completely missing the fact that all of this is life. This expression of life, sitting here in the chair and on these cushions and chairs, just happens to have an additional aspect to it called thinking. Which leads us to believe that somehow that thinking can operate on and control life. You see, you see people who've practiced for years, decades, who are absolutely blown away when they get sick. Right? Or, or, you know, I, I really failed at this. Gosh, after all these years, shouldn't I be able to be better at this? As though somehow this, these practices are going to prepare us to basically get what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. Right? And, and when, you, when you start chipping away at the, at the sort of levels of agenda, I would be surprised that that's not laying down there for everybody in this room. Oh, except for me, of course. Yeah, right. Now, the other sort of mythology that's floating around is what this practice is supposed to do for us. Why else would we do it? And the Buddha doesn't make any kind of highfalutin promises about that. He says very directly this is about the alleviation of suffering, which comes when we see the Dharma, the truth of how it is that things are not solid, that forms are only apparent forms. And sure, the snow changes faster than Mount Washington, for example. But there's a saying in Zen that green mountains are constantly walking. Mount Washington ain't standing still. Nothing is standing still. So while in in, in sort of relative terms, we need language. You know, we say this is a microphone. And it would be silly to get this confused with a banana or a cantaloupe, right? I mean, we need some, in order to hold the social network together, we need some common language for description. But we lose sight of the fact that the description is not the described, and that word fools us into believing that what it points to is an actual thing that doesn't change. Now, if it doesn't change, of course, it's then predictable. So if I see my friend or my partner or one of my daughters, and I immediately say, oh, that's Jessica. I know her. That's my oldest daughter. And immediately, there's there's there's, first of all, there's a deadness there. I already know who you are. What, what else do I need to know? And, it, and if you don't line up in this moment with how I remember you, 
then there's likely to be a certain amount of friction. Right? Because then I'm in the position of having to do catch-up with how this person really is now. And if I cling to my hope, wish, desire, image of how she was, how I want her to be, all kinds of unfortunate stuff can unfold. Right? First of all, she's not going to be, she's not going to feel seen as a person here now. I'm not going to be talking to her. I'm going to be talking to an image I have about her. And so we, these images, these thoughts, these, these labels create all kinds of very fundamental confusions that have very unfortunate outcomes. Now, there's, there's, there are ways to... to um, I want to say practice, work with this stuff, but it's really so much simpler than that. Let me just say a word about practice, and then I'm going to do just a short sitting with us that will maybe kind of anchor this in, you know, sort of now. Um, we all come to practice to one degree or another, and I, I, I rarely say all, but I've, I've yet to see, let me put it this way, I've yet to see an exception of someone who didn't come to practice through the gateway of suffering. It could be a major traumatic loss. It could be a terrible diagnosis. It could be recurrent depression. It could be uh, relationships that just seem to not work out over and over and over again. It could be a sense of malaise. It could be a sense of, you know, I don't like my job. You know, I get up every day. I go to work. My job sucks. I hate it. You name it. There, there's enough. I mean, the Buddha said there's suffering. And that's what gets us, as far as I can tell, all in the doorway of practice. The mind that comes to practice has been conditioned for as long as we've been out of our moms. Okay? From the moment mom or dad said, oh, aren't you cute? And smiled. You know? Or, or said, ooh. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and didn't smile. Right? All of this um, reverberates in the body at a preverbal level before we can ever begin to, you know, language around it at all. So the conditioning starts immediately. And words then begin to get introduced, and language gets to, begins to get introduced. And, and you know, there's the, the fundamental confusion, which is actually quite necessary up to a point. Right? If we don't have some strongly felt sense of self, no matter how inadequate we may think it is, or imagine it to be, or how unsatisfactory it is, it doesn't matter. If we don't grow up with some uh, reasonably settled sense of self, then, you know, the alternative to that is internal chaos. 
attachment disorders, thought disorders, all kinds of you know stuff because there's nothing there for um, our lives to organize around. The problem is that that, and I I I call it a problem. I think it's an inevitability. I I don't see any way around it, frankly. But there's nothing that that exposes us to. That's not the whole story. I'm not my name. I'm not my gender. I'm not my sexual preference. I'm not my role. I'm not a son or a daughter. Yes, I'm all of that. But that doesn't even come close to telling the whole story. And so this conditioning has been... You know, you think about uh, if if you play any sort of sports or do anything that involves skill building with repetitive activity, right? you have some sense of, you know, how many times you have to hit that forehand, you know, or hit the baseball, or, or do the knitting needles, or wash the dishes, for heaven's sakes, right? The number of repetitions it takes for that really to get in us. That's nothing compared to the repetitions of the conditioned mind around who I am and how this is. That's the mind we bring to practice. It's normal, everyday, absolutely Fruit Loops human mind, and we've all got one. You know, we all have one. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just really deeply confused and leads to a lot of a lot of hurt, you know. Um, so we come into practice and and with this conditioned mind, and practice is really a kind of second level of conditioning. It's a second order of conditioning. We take this human mind that creates its own suffering, right? not pain, but suffering. They're different. Right? Pain is pain is what's going on in my in my foot. You know, when I wake up in the morning, uh, when my foot gets on the floor, and my breath goes, oh, that's pain. Suffering is how you know I can't get any exercise. I can barely walk around the block. What'll happen to my cardiovascular system, my fitness, if I can't, you know, work out for two weeks? What about that? Oh my God, I've got a history of cardiovascular illness in my family, and my dad had double bypass, blah, blah. That's suffering. Okay? Pain, suffering. And, and that, just sort of parenthetically, if we can understand that difference and begin to really notice that, that's huge. Just to notice that that suffering is happening because that allows us to begin to observe it, which is really the first step to the kind of freedom that the Buddha talks about. So we come in with this mind. These practices begin to sort of help the mind get healthy in 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 a different way. It gives it, a, it gives it something to orient itself to. It gives it a way to look at itself, the, the, the mischief that it makes, the confusions that it creates. You know, this is just not about 
breathing in and breathing out and breathing in and breathing out. This is about really beginning to look at, well, what about that breathing in and breathing out? You know, when it's a little rough and a little ragged, and I don't like that, then there can be suffering. Well, how does that happen? Just taking this simple movement of breath and turning it into a big deal. So we, we begin to sort of get the mind a little more fit. And we use relationship as a way to kind of test those understandings out. Okay? I mean, where the rubber meets the road is not on the cushion. Okay? It's, that's like training ground. Okay? That's, your, that's your gym. Okay? Where, the, where you really begin to see the edge of your practice is in relationship. Without a doubt, that will show us where the edge of our relationship every time is. And it's no mystery, right? I mean, if you look through the day, you can see the edge of your, your practice coming and going with some frequency if you, if you look. Because right? it's around, I don't like this. I want this to go away. Why can't that guy turn without, with a turn signal? Why is he going so slow? You know, why is my patient late? Why are they talking so much? You know, why did my daughter caught... Right? And so on and so on. Right? Now there's an, the, the, and, and the Buddha lays this out pretty, pretty carefully and in great detail. I'm just sort of giving you the sort of simple touchstones. What the Buddha points to is the unconditioned, the deathless. Emptiness or not self, selflessness, whatever, is essentially the, the, the visceral understanding, the clarity that everything moves. Everything. This thing I call a me or an I. You know, if, if you have, I have, you know, on a, on a good day, I might have, you know, eight conversations with people between patients and students. And, and it's great. Part of what I've noticed over the years is there's a different Doug in every one of those conversations. Okay. I mean, and, and every one of those conversations is dramatically different and absolutely surprising. So, you know, as we enter into this, it's also important to know real practice is absolutely crucial. Serious, devoted, dig into it, sit down, sit still, pay attention, practice. And then taking that on the road on a, on a regular basis. Crucial. And there's a point where there needs to be some looking at the fact that this is a conditioned practice. This is an invention of human beings. It happens to be a, a really wonderful a sparklingly beautiful creation of human beings with tremendous practical uh, consequences. And it's not the deathless. It's not the unconditioned because it's conditioned. And at that point, intentional practice stops. 
Now, this is, this is a little, you know, dicey to say here because I don't know who I'm talking to. And, uh, well, I don't think we run the risk of this building emptying out and people all saying, oh, I don't need to practice anymore. I'll just go, you know, walk up and down Broadway. Um, but it's, all, it's also very useful, no matter where you are in your practice, to check in and see, why are you doing it? And if you've been sitting for 10, 15, 20 years, and you're still really intent on doing your practice and identified with being a practitioner, take a look at that. Okay? Because there's a way at which pra practice is more selfing. Okay? Selfing. Yeah, it's about me doing something. And when we bump up against the unconditioned, we're bumping up against this is just happening. There's nobody doing it. You know, we talk about choiceless awareness. Awareness is choiceless. It's, it, you know, at some point, it's not a practice. You're all aware of sound right now. Are you practicing that? That awareness is choiceless. You're not getting to choose, you know, the sounds that you're hearing or whether you're aware of, you know, my voice and the fan at the same time or now maybe you are. Did you have a choice now to include the fan? You didn't say, okay, now I'm going to listen to the fan and Doug. Right? Awareness is truly choiceless. And it falls under the law of impermanence. Okay. I mean, fundamentally, ultimately, there is nowhere to stand and there's nobody to stand there. Okay. Because if we, really, if we really get what the Buddha's pointing to, there is nothing solid. There are apparent forms, okay? And when I walk out of here tonight, and I hope you do too, make sure the door's open. Otherwise, physics will take over and the feedback will be immediate. Right? That's an apparent form that needs to be bowed to. That's common sense. But I refer back to what I've been saying before, the word is not the thing, and buyer beware when we confuse the two. So what I want to do now is I want us to sit together for a few minutes, and I'm going to do a little guiding for this. Uh, and then we'll probably, you know, take a break and talk for a while. So you can actually sit however you want to sit for this. If uh, you're drawn to uh, sitting in a particular posture, then that's what you're drawn to. Uh, and if you're drawn to having your eyes uh, open or closed, then just allow that to happen. And uh, begin to notice uh, the movement of the breath. And there will be a place or two where the sensations are more clear. Maybe the nostrils, maybe the back of the throat, the chest or belly.
And notice that you don't get to choose uh, where the breath is the most vivid for you right now. It's vivid where it is simply because it is like that. And there was a knowing of that, which you also didn't choose. As the attention rests with the breath for a little while, maybe you can notice that uh, the breath is just moving. Maybe you can notice that uh, the breath changes in that movement. You don't decide when the breath breathes in. You don't choose when the breath breathes out. There's no you doing any of that. So other than in a conventional sense, does it make any sense at all to say, I'm breathing? So there is this uh, sensation phenomena we call breath moving. Now at some point while we're doing this, a thought may come to mind. Can you really say that you chose that thought to come to mind when it did? Or maybe the attention drifts off of the breath, is captured by a thought. Is there choice or control? over when the uh, attention moves away from the breath? Is there choice or control when the mind wakes up to having drifted away? So just resting with the movement of breathing and noticing what's happening. Is there an effort to hear the sound of the fan or the sound of the voice? Or is there just simply the knowing of that? Without effort and without choice. sensations may come into the awareness uh, 
besides breathing. Again, is this not just a happening that arises uh, from who knows where? Uh, hangs around and then somehow disappears. And when there's a need to clear the voice or take a deeper breath or move the body, did you choose to have that urge? Or is it just a natural happening happening? often use words like my body. Sitting here now, notice the uh, aliveness of what we call the body. And on direct examination, is there a clear, distinct boundary on this body, this so-called form? Even where the buttocks touch the chair or the cushion, the feet touch the floor, the hands, arms rest on the lap. Is it really possible to know exactly where one starts and the other stops? Or is there just a field of sensation that's known. Quite mysterious uh, how there is this knowing of, of what we call a car passing by. No effort at all required. Even the arising of restlessness, what we call restlessness. Is nothing that we're doing. 
We're so identified with our history as being who we are. And yet, did any of us uh, really choose to be born to the parents we were born to? Choose to be born male or female? And for the moment, set aside belief in uh, choosing a birth or reincarnation. Uh, Those are conditioned stories. Did we choose our gender any more than we chose the color of our eyes? How about our tastes? Those things that we tend to be drawn to or repulsed by. Are those choices? Are these simply ways that life expresses itself? On direct observation there is this knowing of movement maybe there can be the seeing that no one's doing it For the next uh, few moments, just drop whatever you may be doing or not doing. Just let it all fall away and sit there and be alive as you are. So by this apparent form that says it's a clock, it's 8.15. So I think I'd just like to open it up at this point and just talk a little bit. And we can talk until 9.15 or until we run out of gas. So questions, comments, observations, testimonials. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.